We bless you, everyone, and join us. You can turn now to John chapter 2. And, of course, I have to say I have talked about this before. Um, but it, it does happen. God speaks to you more than once from a passage. And so this came alive to me, and I just want to share with you. And um, But you know it almost by heart, don't you? The third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Uh, that needs some interpretation. His mother, Mary, said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but of course the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. When men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As I say, you know that story as well as I do, and um, we've talked about it before. But there are some things that I've never said before, and so we will get to them as the story unfolds. Okay, it's the beginning of what you might call the Messiah ministry of Jesus. He has been the carpenter of Nazareth for 30, well, no, not since he was 12, and we've not heard a thing from him. The last we heard was a little boy of 12 who got lost away from his parents and they in panic find him. That's the last we hear of Jesus until John the Baptist begins to preach, which was around, Jesus was possibly in the area of 30. And when the news comes that John the Baptist is preaching, Jesus closes the shop and goes down the river Jordan to where John is baptizing. The, the voice of John was the call that Jesus had been waiting for. Whether he knew it or not, he knew it when he heard the voice of John, that this, this is it. It's the beginning. John is the preparer. And when he heard that John was preaching down there in the Jordan, he goes down and he is baptized. And that's another whole story by itself. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, even though he was born of the Spirit and had lived in the Spirit, the Spirit now comes upon him in a way that no one had ever known before in the history of the world. The Holy Spirit came upon and into him. The, the two Greek words are used in the various accounts, epi, which means coming upon, and ice, which means coming into. And and so Jesus now, and it says without limit, and so we now have God the Son who has become human and lives among us, and now God the Holy Spirit is going to familiarize himself with the human via the body and person of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has joined us in the human race. But specifically at this time, to empower Jesus to become the Messiah and to do his work. 
as I say, this is suddenly it's all opening up now after 30 years of silence. And from there, that spirit, God the Holy Spirit, now says to Jesus, get out of here. It's very strong language. He said it drove him into the wilderness to meet with Satan. And there's these six weeks where he doesn't eat. He's alone in the wilderness and he's dealing with all the temptations of Satan, which again is another story. But he comes out of the wilderness and he's ready. The I don't know if you can feel the dynamic of this. The, the entire universe has been waiting for his birth. Well, he's born and then he disappears. Now, 30 years later, we're waiting, we're ready, a Messiah, the one who has come specifically to save, now steps onto the world stage. And John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The first disciples come to him and he moves up now. He's leaving the Jordan. He's coming up. He's going home. But he's carrying with him six disciples. And they come to Cana, which is only about, well, I tell you, if you live around here, it's about as far as Pipe Creek is from here. This would be Nazareth, and Pipe Creek would be Cana. It was very close. And it was in the hill country of the Galilee. And so here you have it. Uh, very close. And um, Jesus comes to Cana on his way home, and there's a wedding. And apparently his mother Mary was something like the wedding planner or caterer or something. She had obviously authority there so that she could speak to the servants and say, do this and do that and whatever he says, you do it. And the servants just say, yes, ma'am. Um, and, and she's the one who knows they've run out of wine. And so <coughs> they um, come to Mary to say they've run out of wine. And so Jesus then is invited to the wedding. I don't know whether that had anything to do with it. Um, but he turns up and it's not just Jesus. There's six hefty men with him. and um, <clears throat> But I don't think six men could drink all the wine. And so I, I just think they happen to be there. And, and, and Jesus is invited to the wedding. And so... A wedding in in the Jewish world at that time, it lasted usually around a week. That was your sort of average person wedding. It could last up to six months, but that was for the rich and famous. But uh, for the average Jew, um, a wedding lasted about six days. In that six days, there'd be many kinds of feasting, um, There'd be many kinds of toastings and dances and the whole city, the whole village would be involved and it's the king and queen of the village are now the bride and groom and everything's wonderful. The parents of the bride would take care of the, the feasts. They had to pay for the whole week of feasting. But the wine had to be paid for by the groom. So the groom pays for the wine. His wife's parents pay for the feast. It's been going on, and I'm saying until about Wednesday, if we can work it all out. And then it comes, um, the, the news of, of the wine running out. But before I get there, I, I don't know, sometimes we get so used to these stories. But the incarnation, God, can, can I even think about it? Do I have enough brains to think about it? That God became one of us, not by putting on a mask of humanity and pretending. He genuinely assumed to himself the totality of what it means to be human. And we've been looking at that 
for 30 years. He's a genuine baby. He's a genuine toddler. Um, he graduates synagogue school and he goes then to become apprentice to his father. He's the carpenter. I mean, he's in it. And, and we, we've lost him. I can't find him for 30 years. He has so become one of us. He, he, and even his neighbors don't recognize him to be anything more than the carpenter of Nazareth. And now suddenly he's come on the scene. God incarnate. This is his great debut to the world. What's he look like? And of course religion has destroyed him with all those stupid shooting lights out of him and, and that look on his face that he couldn't touch a fly. Uh, and No, th this is it. If you want to see God incarnate, this is it. This was the first, the first. Before he does anything else, this is what introduced him. This is his coming out party. This is, here's God incarnate. And where do we find him? But he's perfectly home in six days of feasting and dancing and laughter and congratulations and toasting. That's his introduction. As if to say, this is who I am and whatever else I do, hold this in mind. I've let you know that I'm absolutely one with you. And the church as a whole has not really gotten used to this. Even, I mean, it's taken them 2,000 years to know they don't belong here. Um, because the church today, how would you write this story? How, how would you say it? Well, I think he would refuse to go. I mean, he's a good Christian. And so he's invited to a party. There's going to be dancing deal there's going to be music and it won't be from the gaither trio it's you know it's going to be music and and they're going to link arms and the whole village will spin around and shout and laugh and dance as only the jewish people can no that's too worldly i mean don't you know i've just spent six weeks alone in the wilderness fasting and praying and you don't need to upset all of that. Well, you see, the fact is, and boy, we've got a lot to swallow here, that what was happening in Cana, those spinning dances and laughter and shouting and toasting, was a reflection of the Holy Trinity. Um, I say that takes a lot of, for some people, um, that they'll turn this off. Um, but the Holy Trinity is the community of joy. If we wanted a word to describe the Trinity, it would be the dance of love. And it's reflected to the point wherever you go on this planet, you will find humans who want to do. Basically, what we're doing here right now is in a circle. It's always in a circle. And, and they dance in circles, and they sit in circles, and they laugh together in circles, and, and they pat each other on the back and tell stories and laugh. And Why do we do that? And why do you do it? And why do people in the middle of the jungle who's never met you do it? Because it reflects our Creator. We're meant for community in a community, not of some sobriety, but a, a, a community of laughter, joy. He's not awkward. He goes to the wedding. He gets involved in producing the wine for the wedding. Do you understand when I say he's not awkward? He's not out of place. As if I've come from another world and you should appreciate that. No, he's joined us to the point where he's immersed into our lives. Right down to details. And he's not standing aloof, disapprovingly, as if to say, well, I'm here because my mother's running the show, but I don't approve of this, and um, I, I, I want you to know this. And I'm not pushing it when I say that, because that's exactly what a Pharisee would have done. And I know there are whole churches who are listening to me. That's what you would have done, too. You, you'd stand, well, I have to be here. But I'm, I disapprove of the whole thing. This is not being spiritual, and we'll have to repent before midnight. It's, but 
when God became flesh, he upsets that to the point we call it scandal. That that God in the flesh should have his debut to the world at a wedding feast that lasted for six days, but also after this, um, he's going to sit with tax collectors, which were akin to the mafia of the day, and they're going to do the same thing. They're going to have a feast, and there's going to be laughter and joy. Um, he's saying, yeah, this, this is what God is like. Now, try you, 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 you have to change, you see. You have to change. He's not going to change. This is who God is. And, and, and so we, we are the ones who have got a wrong image of God based a great deal on the religious art that spewed out of religion in the Middle Ages. So here it is. Eating, drinking, laughter, telling stories on the bride and the groom, music of every kind, dancing with those dances that involve everybody. Um, Now all of this Remember, it's a a Jewish wedding, and therefore it's entwined with a great sense of the covenant God. Nothing they do is outside of that. It's entwined with all his promises. But for all that, for all that, it is what I... Okay, put it this way. You're sitting there, and you're sipping on your wine, because we know there was plenty of that, and, and... Suddenly, someone grabs your hand, pulls you out of your seat. It's Jesus, and he's in one of those spinning dances, and he carries you. Come dance with me, and you off you go, and there's laughter. And Is that your kind of Jesus? Or is he that miserable Jesus that always frowns on things like that? Because that's religion, isn't it? Solemn. We really think this is spirit. This is holiness, isn't it? Solemn, a miserable face, unsmiling. You're a holy person. Serious. There's always a dark cloud of disapproval because there's always something that you've got to pray about because this is bad. Um, but that's holiness, isn't it? I was raised with that. That's being holy. Religion sees God only as dealing with salvation in terms of heaven and hell that's God he's got these big things on his mind he's completely absorbed with the day of judgment in fact he can't wait to get there uh, and and all this goings on of uh, dancing and singing and laughter and storytelling and uh, that's so annoying it's so it's a human activity at a disgusting level. It's religion disconnects from the daily grind. Religion's got nothing to do with how you feel in school or how you feel at work. Religion is so taken up with the real stuff and with the serious stuff. Not all this other nonsense. It's distracting. Religion doesn't know a thing about the little joys that make up life. Religion can't feel at home at a barbecue because you're not spiritual enough. Hmm. You know, religion has that look. They don't have to say anything. They just shut a party down with a look. And everybody sits there sort of half guilty and shameful and quiet until religion leaves. And then there's a sigh of relief that you could hear all over town and we go back to not, now we'll be humans again. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm trying to introduce you to the real God incarnate. Because here he is, you see. This is the first, the first miracle, the first miracle. He, he hasn't done anything before this. Nothing. The first miracle. And it's a window taking me right into the heart of God who has become one of us. He's totally immersed into our mundane little lives. I mean, we don't even know the names of this couple. 
Do you realize that? The most famous wedding story you've ever heard, and we don't even know who they were. They were an anonymous couple, couple of peasants, probably couldn't read or write, up there in the hills. And he's totally immersed in them. They have become the most important thing for God to be. Do you hear what I'm trying to say? Um, He's exalting. There's no other word for it. He takes these ridiculous little things that we humans get involved in and he exalts it to become. This is how he wants us to know him. He takes this very ordinary stuff and makes it of infinite importance. And the stage in which we are united with the Holy Trinity. I mean, take it for each one of ourselves, you know, your birth, your first tooth, your first step, your first day at school, your birthday, things you got in sports and arts, then your graduation, all your vacations, what goes on in the home and marriage, all that stuff that religion doesn't know what to do with, except shut it down. He is totally included in it. Now, it, it, it's not just knows about. He himself had a birth. He himself, God, had a first tooth. God himself had a first step. God himself went to school. God himself, you see what I'm saying? He's become immersed in us. Well, that's who he is, the first miracle, the first introduction to the Messiah. Mary comes to him anxious. You can almost hear the panic in her voice. They've run out of wine. She'd be the only person who knew that, except for the bridegroom. He, he would be the first to know. Somebody in the kitchen had just casually said, where's where's the next wineskin? No one knows. And they go to Mary, and Mary gets, there's no no wine. And goes to the groom. This, this, it was immersed in superstition. Wine throughout the scripture is always an image of joy, right from Genesis on. And, And so, the superstition was that if you ran out of wine at a wedding, then you were doomed. Your marriage has already lost its joy. In some areas that even think your marriage was cursed. But you are starting out on a very, very wrong foot. And that is the reason they made sure you didn't run out of wine. In fact... It was possible for the guests to sue the bridegroom if they ran out of wine. Because what else do you think we came here for? You know, and, and you, you, you fooled us. We gave up a whole week of our life and there's no wine. We sue you. Uh, that wasn't universal, but it was possible. It was a very big deal. Um, it is a great cloud had come upon the whole wedding, when it would be found out no wine, it's shame on the bridegroom especially, but shame on the couple, and the wife would wonder, what is my husband about, that he didn't get enough wine? The the in-laws would go nuts, because they've paid for the feast, and now there's no wine. Tell you, this would be talked about in that little village for decades. In fact, they, when they died, it might be said, you know, when they were married, there was no wine. And I can't, no wonder Mary with this anxious, urgent look, we're in crisis. No, none of the guests know yet. The groom, I can't imagine what he's doing. He's the only one at the table out there that knows what's going on. And he knows it's any minute now, any minute the next time we see servants coming out of the kitchen, they're going to be announcing there's no more wine. And then all hell breaks loose. Then I'm shamed, and then, and then, and then he's sitting there. 
He's having digestion, yeah. indigestion, yeah. quiet panic. The master of seminaries, the head waiter, doesn't know. He assumes they've just gone to open the next skin of wine. Mary pulls Jesus aside into the kitchen. She's terrified because she's part of this. And she's telling Jesus because she's had him in the house for 30 years and she knows he always comes up with a good answer. But he's never, no miracles. This is the first. But he's always been wisdom. Now, something happened that I don't know if you've ever realized. Probably won't mean much to you anyway, but it would mean a lot to some people. When she has finished with her eyes, look of terror in her eyes, deer caught in the headlights, we've run out of wine. Jesus said, woman. Now I've told you before, that is the highest respect. There is no way that we, I don't think there's a translation of that word into English. It is placing of woman, um, lady. It's, but even lady is not, certainly woman is not a good translation here in the West anyway. But, so he says it with great honor, with great respect. It, it goes back, it echoes back into the Garden of Eden when Adam called himself Ish. And when Eve was presented, he said, Isha, you know, same as me, equal. Um, but why did Jesus call her woman? You called, if, if you were a person that was very different to the average person of that day, where women had no place, but Jesus would, he called the woman caught in adultery, he called her woman. Um, and was it in the resurrection, woman, why weepest thou? Jesus introduced us to this exalting of women to become equal to men. But he's not talking to just a woman, that's his mother. A man would not call his mother woman because mother is higher than woman. Do you follow me? I, I can look at you here and you there and say woman, but I can't call any of you mother. That, that's a higher, that's, do you follow me? I'm going to say it, Jesus shouldn't have called her woman. She was his mother. And although woman is all that I've said, the term of highest respect, and there's, now putting, there's no putting her down here at all. But on the other hand, why didn't he call her what she was? Mother. We are facing something that has been overlooked, actually, for centuries. Jesus is stepping onto the stage He's going to be our Savior, Messiah. And at that point, there is no human being that can speak into it. No human being that can help him do it. He treads this winepress alone. Do you follow me? What he's going to do defies all human logic. No one will understand him. Even Peter, who had been with him in, in, in his position as Messiah and heard him and had made the confession that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Within minutes of that, when Jesus began to speak of how he would do that, Peter says, no, you can't do that. And Jesus said to him, Satan, get behind me, because you don't get it. You, he says to Peter, you don't savor the things of God. You don't understand it. Mary had been given the place of greater honor than any other woman on the planet to become the mother 
of the Messiah. She is mothering God incarnate. The church called her Theotokos, the God-bearer. And that's absolutely true. When she went into Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and the babe, John leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth said, the mother of my Lord, the mother of Yahweh, has come to visit me. Oh, yes. Never, never join the Protestants in putting Mary down. They have trashed Mary. But then on the other hand, don't make her more than the Bible makes her. Because at this point, Jesus is essentially saying, thank you, you've been my mother. You have brought me to this point. But at this point, I'm sorry, I can't listen to you. Do you follow me? He's going to say, why? Because my hour is not yet come. I have not heard my father say, it is time to step on the stage with a miracle. I haven't heard that. And so, dear lady, I honor you and I respect you, but you cannot speak to me as my mother and tell me it's time to show yourself to the world. You don't know anything about that. That's between me and my father. And therefore, I wait. I have nothing to do with what you're saying. You're telling me there's a crisis. I can't respond to that unless my father tells me this is the moment for you to come on the stage with the miracles that will change everything overnight. Do you understand? Pretty heavy stuff. It means that from birth he'd only listened to his father. So much at 12, he said, I must be about my father's business. But then his father told him, back there when he was 12, to submit to his parents. Whoa, a teenager, submitting to his parents. But now at 30 years old, he says, "Where well, I'm going from here. From here, this, this is it. From here on, I cannot submit to you anymore as my mother. I can't. You cannot tell me how to do my job. You cannot present me with requests that I will listen to. You cannot help me with my mission. It's... um. Mine hour is not yet come. My hour, therefore, is not dictated to by the logic of humans. You wouldn't understand. And I don't put you down for that. I called you woman. You're the highest. All generations shall call you blessed. But you can't come here. He would tell his disciples in three years' time, when he spoke of his sufferings, he said, I'm going... And they say, we want to come with you. And he said, where I go, you cannot come. Just sit down, shut up, you can't come. I go this alone. That that really, <laughs> mine hour is not yet come. I feel like saying my hour has come and it's time you got on and did something about this wine business. But he doesn't go by our logic. And though everyone's biting their fingernails and the poor groom is, is, is ready to be carried out in an ambulance, um, Jesus said, my hour is not yet come. I cannot respond to my mother. And, and also, he said, um, well, what, what have you to do with me? Which is a poor translation. Somebody should kind of get the drift of it. But, but it means we're not on the same page. Number one, you're acting as my mother trying to get your 30-year-old son out of the house to do the job that she was told he would do when he was born. Well, we're not on the same page. I've been doing that since I was born, listening to my father. But also we're not on the same page. Because you see, dear lady, you are in a mess 
You're nothing but panic and anxiety. Jesus said, I don't, I don't join the drama. I don't respond to panic. I'm not forced to do something because of the pressure of the moment. I, I'm not the divine fix-it man that's got seven wishes to give you. No. He said, I operate only by what my father says. And amazingly, she seemed to understand that. Mary was an amazing woman in many, many ways. And she doesn't answer him on that. She submits to it. She turns to the servants and gives her last command. She's not going to be, she's disappeared after this. Her last command, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. Meaning, I'm out of this picture. You're not going to hear what I want anymore. I've put it in his hands. And however he works it out, it will be good. So whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says, whatever he says, because I'm warning you servants, it probably will sound crazy what he says. But whatever he says, however insane it sounds, however unexpected, he's in charge of the kitchen and the catering and the wedding. is in his hands. It's something I think many people have got to understand. Everything Jesus said and did, he is expressing the heart and mind of the Father. Because we, I speak that very generally as the West, Western civilization, Christianity, and most of our churches today have no clue about the Father. You talk about God the Father and their face goes blank. They don't know. Um, Jesus, well, he's, he's the nice guy. He died to save us, didn't he? Save us from the Father, didn't he? See, that's about as far as we go. Where the Father's going to beat the crap out of us and Jesus comes and saves us. And if you're a charismatic, you say, and then we get the icing on the cake with the Holy Spirit. We are totally un un messed up on the Holy Trinity. God the Father, the, the, the great gushing forth of unbegun, unending love that reaches out to all, who speaks and always speaks and always does through Jesus the Son. So the Son is the perfect expression and image of the Father and does that in the Holy Spirit, in that you know that because the Holy Spirit tells you. But there's not a thing that Jesus does that the Father is not doing. Jesus only does what the Father's doing. Jesus only says what the Father's saying. And of course, the Father upheld Jesus through his sufferings. It wasn't the Father who was beating him. It was us. He went to the cross by the hands of wicked men, not his Father. His Father upheld him. Just hold that in mind and come to know the Father. Of course, what Jesus might have done, and I think you always have to at least give, give an inch to say what he might have done, which I know, I know plenty of pastors who would have done these things. Stop the feast. Go on, go out there. You, you, it's now in your hands. Go out there, stop the feast, and tell them you drank too much. You should be ashamed. You've emptied every wineskin in the house. And announce there is no wine. And who cares about the couple being ashamed? Live with it. Because religion never cares about anybody. Call the place to prayer and repentance and cast out a few demons and get serious with God. This is a disaster going on. Or if you decide you're going to do a miracle, then, well, everyone gather around and watch what I'm going to do because this is the beginning of a new revival, you know. 
How other are we than Jesus? Jesus never does it as we've been trained to do it these days. He's in the kitchen. <laughs> and everything he does is a secret. The only people who knows what's going on are the servants. I mean, come, stand in the, stand in the kitchen. You can hear it. The music is still playing. The laughter, the chatter. There's a period of silence. There's a speech going on of congratulation. The kids are all playing out in the courtyard because they're off school. Not a person in the place knows that they're drinking the last drop of wine in the place. Except the groom. He's out there with pains in his stomach and neck and And in the secret of the kitchen, Jesus turns to the servants and he says, fill the water pots with water to the top. Now, it says that there were six water pots and they were used for cleansing. It's sort of ceremonial. They'd be used on feast days. But they were also, the, remember, they didn't have running water. So these pots would be in the kitchen but they were used mostly for cleansing. So it's where you'd wash your hands because the the people of that day were very into washing hands um, as part of their religious approach to eating. And um, you would wash the vegetables. Uh, if anybody's visiting, you'd wash their feet. These were ceremonial. They were big. Very big, tall. Um, and six of them, if you work out the math, uh, they, they, the six water pots, 180 gallons of water. Uh, 180 gallons of water that is soon going to become wine. Did you know, I'm sure you knew this, but 180 gallons of Wine is a thousand bottles of wine today. You didn't know it, did you? A thousand bottles of wine. I mean, there, there's, and he says, fill these to the top. Just a minute. Why didn't he say, fill the wine skins? Why go to water pots? Well, you see, it's very possible that in those wineskins, they, they could have left some wine. And so you put water in, and then it takes a reddish hue, and they say, see, he didn't really turn water to wine, it just got mixed up. No, he, we're not going there. So the water pots. And, and fill them to the top in case someone thinks we threw some wine in half full. He makes it difficult for himself. But of course, difficult, did I say? No, this is probably the first miracle, but it's probably the most, it's the greatest miracle. We say it so glibly, he turned water into wine. You can't. You can't. Um, it's the same thing that they tried back in the Middle Ages. Do you remember? Maybe you have the alchemists, you know, turning lead into gold. Oh, it's a great idea, but you can't. See, when Jesus healed a limb, your physical body, well, the, the molecules, the atoms that made up the thing that needed to be healed was the same as the rest of the body. And, and so all he, had, all he had to do was to, you know, reverse the, the molecules to become healthy and strong. But you see, the molecules that make up water are utterly different to the molecules that make up wine. So you can fool with water any way you want. 
but you'll still be left at the end of it with water molecules. You can't turn water molecules into wine molecules. You just can't do it. Do, do you understand me? I'm not a scientist, but that's the best I can say. But that means that Jesus created wine from ground zero. He didn't turn water into wine. The wine became the container, you could say, or the whatever. But he, it, actually this hadn't been done since Genesis 1. The last time that this happened was Genesis 1. There is a word in the Hebrew language that is very distinct. It's bara. And bara means to call forth out of nothing. It means you've got nothing to start with. And you call forth out of nothing. Bara, which is the true English word create. And that's how we understand creation. God called forth creation out of nothing. Out of nothing. He had nothing to start with. There's another Hebrew word, asa, which, which means creation, but it means that you had something to start with. And so some, and that's translated make. And so God many times created the dust, and then asa is he took the dust and made something with it. But this is bara. You've got nothing to start with. It's a creative miracle. Wine appearing out of nothing. And how did he do it? He didn't pray. Right? He Come on, he didn't pray for the water. Didn't pray for wine. All he said was, fill the jugs. Fill these great big pots. That's all. He didn't pray. He didn't speak a word. You know, he did. Rise, take up your bed and walk. Your faith has made you whole. He said a lot of things. Or to demons, he said, come out. But here's the greatest miracle he ever did that we know of. And he didn't say a jolly word. He just looks at it. I mean, at least he could have laid hands on each pot. Well, he laid hands on the sick, you know. Seriously. And I, I know, I'm talking to a bunch of charismatics, you know. I know. I was leader of the movement. You've got to find something to lay your hands on. And if that fails, blow in their face. I mean, anything will do. But you've got to do something. Speak something now. Jesus didn't do anything. Fill the pots with water. How did he do it? The creative miracle took place because he wanted it to. That's it. Period. Finished. He looked at it and willed or wanted a couple of scared, spitless kids to avoid being shamed. That's it. Nothing more spiritual than that. There's two kids out there that in a few minutes they're going to hear there's no wine and all hell will break loose. And I will. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Creator of heaven and earth, wills that they are not shamed. And in so doing, he looked at the jars and willed it and wanted it. And that was enough. Wow. A thousand bottles of wine were called into existence out of nothing. A hundred and eighty gallons. Well, they are serving the entire village, I'll grant you that. And there'll be all the visiting relatives too. But 180 gallons of wine. 
that would mean that there are gallons left over. What are they going to do with them? Sell them, if they've got any sense. They're going to, this is a wedding present from Jesus that is going to keep on. Because they're not going to drink all of this. And the wine area belongs to the groom. So that means this little family starts off with a nest egg of a wine company. That they're going to sell wine. And believe me, when the word gets out as to how this wine came into being, well, I'll leave that. But that's the grace and love of God. And don't look at me so horrified. What do you think Peter did when he caught that bunch of fish that nearly sank the boat? Did he take it to the synagogue and say, let's make a, you know, a crash of this so we could... No, he went to market and sold the whole lot. You, you follow? Jesus was investing in their business. It's interesting, the, the servants involved in this, because Jesus could have filled those pots with water himself very easily. In fact, at this point, he could have created the water in the pots. He could have taken the wine out to, to the MC, but he didn't. He intentionally involved a bunch of servants. And again, I don't know one of their names. <laughs> Amazing. But that's his MO. God never does stuff like a, a blast from the heavens. He always does it through you, through me. Always. Whether it's a word, bringing healing, just plain loving on a family. He never, never does it without us. Mind you, it's scary. Because these guys were the one that put the water in the pots. So they knew it was water. They were the ones that went and got it. <laughs> and now Jesus said, okay, ladle some out and take it to the master of the feast. And I can you know, look at each other. Is this man mad? I mean, we know that was what we put the water in there. And now he says, we have got to go and take. It's amazing. And they trusted him. And as they pour it out into the glass, it's rich red wine. They are looking at each other and rolling their eyes. But of course, thank God they're servants. They're not expected to say anything. But as the master of ceremonies tastes the wine and rolls it around his mouth, he says, turns to the groom. And the groom is sitting there saying, where did they get that wine from? You know, <laughs> I was just ready for a disaster. And he turns to the groom and he says, you are some fellow, you are, you rascal. He said, everybody in town knows you serve the, the best wine first, and then when we're all as drunk as skunks, you bring out the old wine, no good. But he says, you, you are some fellow. You have kept the best wine until last. And the groom is, <laughs> I'd love to, I could preach a sermon just on that groom's face. Just sit there, what on earth is this man talking about? He's telling me I've got a stash of wine that's better than anything we've drunk so far when I know we ran out. Where's this come from? But everybody's congratulating the family. This is fascinating to me. The couple, they didn't know how they suddenly had wine and enough of it and they're going to discover incredibly enough. And it was the best wine, but they never had it. They, 
They're sitting there. We did. We didn't know about this. Try and feel how they felt. We didn't know about it. But hold it just a minute. They didn't ask Jesus. They didn't have a prayer meeting and say, we've run out of wine and please do something. They, they didn't. No, they were just in despair. Or at least the groom was. So there was no agony in faith. He wasn't trying to believe. He wasn't confessing that there would be enough wine. There's going to be enough wine. In the name of Jesus, there's going to be enough. No. He had no idea what was going on. They didn't make promises of going and giving their life to missions if you'll only get us out of this mess. They didn't check up to make sure they'd been tithing. And you know I'm not making this up. That's how people look at it these days. They had absolutely nothing to do with this. To the point where they were confused when everyone else was smiling and congratulating. They're looking at each other saying, I don't know what's going on. And they paid nothing for a thousand bottles of the very best wine. Do you realize the best wine? What's that going to cost in today's money? At least $50 a bottle. Probably a hundred dollars a bottle. And they've got a hundred and eighty gallons of it. A thousand bottles. A hundred thousand dollars worth of wine. And we, we didn't know about this. And now it's ours. And they'd never know what happened really until a few days later. When finally one of the servants spoke up and the word began to filter out. And Jesus stands in the kitchen still, beaming from ear to ear. Mission accomplished. They are no longer going to be shamed. That's all we cared about. And And it says, He revealed His glory. You know, the word glory, we've talked about it before, it, it means to form an opinion. It's a, it's a view, it's an idea, it's an intention. It's, it's, a, it's the way you see things and report on them. And so in Exodus 33, the glory of God is his goodness, his infinite kindness, his spontaneous covenant love. It takes in the human situation. Now, now we've seen that. We've seen he revealed his glory. What is his glory? Not that he stood there like a lit up Christmas tree, as your religious art would describe it. His glory was that there's a family out there beside themselves with relief and joy, and he's beaming from ear to ear. It's the glory of God. The the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, face to face, has come into our humanity at its most ordinary level. He's come into the kitchen that is pulsating with anxiety. And the face-to-faceness of God and his love and his kindness and his beauty has been manifest in the kitchen. Did you see that? That was God's opinion. That's God's opinion of an anonymous peasant couple. And their only problem was they'd made the mistake of their lives. And he came to rescue them from their mistake. The miracle of miracles just to bring them joy and happiness. While at the same time bringing forth the glory of God that will be talked about for the rest of time. I mean, keep on looking at that couple. Why on earth would he do that for us? If they belong to our Western church, they would say, we're not worthy. 
We're nobodies. We're insignificant peasants. Why would he do that for us? There's no record that they were great members of the synagogue. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. Didn't seem to matter to God. Just loves us. And so you're looking at heaven and earth married together. They're not reaching up to God trying to find him. Rather, God has married himself to earth and reveals that glory in the kitchen. And I said a moment ago, it was a great mistake. You bet it was a mistake. Somebody miscounted big time. Somebody overlooked something. Well, don't you have to pay for your mistakes? I mean, if you do something daft like that, you're going to pay for it, you know? It's tough, it's life. But apparently not. Jesus involved himself totally in the biggest mistake that groom probably had made in his life. And he reversed the mistake big time. Think about that. Because many times there are areas of life that we are very hesitant to even think of sharing <clears throat> with the Father. It's my mistake, you know. I goofed. I should have, I ought to have, if only I had. But I didn't. That doesn't appear to matter. You're not going to be punished for a mistake. He steps right in and does this. Jesus acted in the full light of the Father's love. The is now love for that couple just in the situation they were in. This is kindness of God. And the word kindness means being useful. It's love at a useful end. And, and that speaks that into the area. You can't isolate this. This covers all forms of anxiety. The anxiety of running out of wine, then the double anxiety for the groom for having made the mistake. And so it goes on. And the anxiety that's going to go on to the end of time. And he says, be anxious for nothing. And interestingly, at that time in Matthew 6, he says, be anxious for nothing. Your father knows. As if to say, that's enough. He knows. You don't have to get involved. He's one with us. Have you ever thought about this? How many acts of God's love and kindness have happened in your life that you don't even know about? When he turned your water into wine and you wondered where on earth did that come from? You know? And, and we go on our way. What a coincidence. Thank God. Boy, I'm a lucky man today. You know, we might say, God bless me. But have you ever thought of what he's doing in the kitchen while I'm worrying at the head table? Huh. Uh, how many acts of God's kindness we know nothing about until long afterwards, and that's only if you've got the ears to hear. We've got to learn to trust him when we don't know what's going on. Rest in the fact that he's working this out. The Father says, his hour has come for you. And it will always be quiet. The love energy of God in the kitchen is so quiet. That's why you don't know about it until afterward. And if you are involved, don't mess it up by advertising it. And so, well, I think I'll, I'll quit. 
I think that's good enough to keep us in a frame of mind for the rest of the day. Father, thank you that you are the fountain of all love and kindness. Thank you that Jesus is the unbegun, uncreated one through whom you reveal yourself. Do your works and speak your words. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You are the one that opened our eyes to see and grant us that divine seeing and hearing to know your works of love when we least expect it. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen.